you can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside, repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. This is Totally 80s, the podcast dedicated to the music of the greatest decade ever. So... Turn up your Walkman, loosen that scrunchie, and get ready to talk 80s with your host, Lindsay Parker. Hi, I'm Lindsay Parker from Yahoo Entertainment and Sirius XM Volume, and welcome to Totally 80s. And since we're all at home, why not take a second to follow us at Totally 80s on Facebook and Instagram, or email us your comments and show ideas to us at podcast.totally80s.com. As a reminder, if you want to see our lovely faces, you can catch this episode on video as well as on our Totally 80s YouTube channel, so check that out. And joining me today, as always, is my partner in all things 80s crime, the other John Hughes. Hey, Lindsay, what's going on? Well, I've been going down a YouTube rabbit hole because, you know, we're all in lockdown and there's not much else to do, but that has inspired the podcast we're going to talk about because YouTube is a goldmine of 80s television and today we are going to be talking about our favorite musician guest spots on 80s tv shows like devo on square pegs mm. stacy q on the facts of life of course boy george on the ATM. i feel like we could de devote almost an entire podcast to just that alone but i'm real excited because you know you remember when we were kids and we were rounded up by the tv sets you know ethereal glow with our cereal and how much our minds would be blown when like, you know, the worlds collide and like, I know I'm making a seventies reference here, but like Davy Jones would just randomly show up on the Brady bunch. And you're like, what Davy Jones and Marshall Brady know each other. Like how this happened a lot in the eighties. It happened a lot on a show that actually, I think we could probably dedicate an entire podcast to, we won't except in my own brain, but square pegs. It was uh -huh. a total, it was a totally different head, John, totally. totally different head. Johnny Slash, you know, new wave <laughs> punk, totally different head, totally. So uh, I am Jewish on my mother's side. I'm a, I'm a good half Jew. And I'll tell you this, this is not a lie. The reason I had a bat mitzvah was because of square pegs. Because <laughs> Just like babies. I was really wanting to have my full Muffy Tepper, Tepperman fantasy. Sadly, Devo did not play. Devo did not play at my bat mitzvah, just like Josie Cotton did not play at my prom. Like everything that I saw on the screen was not how it really was in the Valley. But I swear, I bet you that episode made people like want to convert to Judaism. Well, yeah, it was interesting <laughs> because they were like the second really uh, popular new wave band to be on Square Pegs because, you know, the debut episode had the waitresses. My life is over. I might as well dance with Johnny Slash. Along we did the theme song. Yeah, so that was cool. But yeah, the, the Bat Mitzvah was amazing. And, you know, the interesting thing for me as a devotee uh -huh, is <laughs> that they were in their uh, Oh No, It's Devo era spud uniforms with the with the potato white rings as opposed to the freedom of choice uh, red uh, uh, helmets. 
that they were so well known for. So I wonder, I've always wondered if there was some executive at like CBS that saw this filming and went, how come they're not wearing the red hats? That's what people know them for. And Devo plays for Muffy's party, but Lauren, Patty and Johnny Slash aren't invited because they're square pegs. Well, it was a bit later, right? They did That's Good. So it's like, yeah. if, you know, semi-later period, Devo. But I have some fun facts because I interviewed Ann Beats and the music uh, supervisor, Stephen Elvis Smith, when it, the anniversary of one of the darkest days in TV history happened, the day Square Pegs got officially canceled, yeah. which CBS really made a mistake there. But I did this big piece on all the music that was in Square Pegs. So here are some fun facts. The original band that was supposed to play Muffy Tepperman, a.k.a. Jamie Gertz's bat mitzvah, was The Clash. Not what? Diva, was The Clash. So <laughs> Ann Beats, who, you know, she was hip. She was one of the original Saturday Night Live writers. She knew all these people. Mick Jones wanted to do it. Wow. But could not convince Joe Strummer to do it, right? So Joe Strummer made a mistake. But, I mean, it all worked out because I feel like who would be more fun to have play your bat mitzvah, Devo or The Clash? I feel like Devo is more like the party band to, you know, bring the the costumes and the and the you know the sense of whimsy, as it were. Better visually too for the show, I think, because you know they're just such a visually focused band, a video video forward band. But they were not Devo. Were not the second choice either, John. Oh. So after The Clash weren't going to do it, this one would have really not worked. Boomtown Rats were asked. Oh, that's funny because they had just been on SCTV at that point uh, doing Teacher's Pet, which I will spare you my rendition of that theme song from that classic sketch. <laughs> I, I, would, I, wouldn't, I actually wouldn't oh, stop you. It's the best. Uh, uh, it's Andrea Martin as the students doing this kind of fake to Sir with Love song called Teacher's Pet. It's amazing. Mr. Zachary is a small token of our appreciation for what you might have done if you've been able to stay around here with us. We'd like to give you this cookie cookie oh it's, she's a beautiful woman but i <laughs> teacher's pet i wanna be teacher's pet i wanna be huddled and cuddled as close to you as i can get Uh, yeah, Bob Geldof uh, was a, in a sketch on SCTV, like a long sketch, and was really good. And if you look at the uh, DVD commentaries and listen to it, uh, Catherine O'Hara was completely in love with him. She's the one that got them on the show. Wow. So then they couldn't do it, which I think had to do with some scheduling thing. So then there was a CBS executive, maybe the same one who was mad that they didn't wear their red hats. I don't know. His name was Harvey Shepard, but he had um, – he had a daughter who was young enough to be into new wave. Cause it was a totally different head. Totally. So he, she called, he said like, who should I book? Like who, who's a good band to do this? She's like, she happened to be a fan of Devo, but Devo almost didn't do it. There was, I think Jerry was not into it. And there was like a last minute thing and they were going to back out the last minute, but it all happened and it all worked out. And that's, I think that's like the Holy grail of eighties new wave television, but that was just the tip of the iceberg with, the cameos that happened on um, Square Pegs because we're going back to bands that are even aren't from the 80s, but John Densmore from The Doors was on it as well. Do you remember that? I do. That was a very, very strange cameo. So it was a band by uh, jo Johnny Slash that was originally called Open 40, no, originally called Open 24 Hours. 
And then because they just wanted to up the ante and be a little bit extra, they became open 48 hours. And they actually had a couple good songs. They had John Densmore actually playing the drums, and they had a song called I'm Tired. One, two, three. I don't mean to irritate or alienate, but people don't appreciate the fact I don't communicate because I'm tired. I'm totally tired. And a song called Get Back to Me. And I found out in this piece I did from Square Pegs that the, one of the people that wrote the song, uh, Jonathan Wolf, ended up writing a lot of the music for, for Seinfeld. You know, that like famous, like, don't, 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 like, oh, I can't wow. But, you know, the bass yeah, from. Bass line probably bought him a house. Pretty much. I don't think I'm tired and get back to me by open 48 hours probably did, but that's the superior song, I think. But my mind was blown to go back to the fact that there were all these um, things that were supposed to happen on Square Pet, that the Clash were uh, bowed out, that the Boomtown Rats bowed out. I don't know if you remember that Jimmy and the Mustangs, this kind of like small rockabilly band was on. That was supposed to be the Stray Cats. Aww. And like Slim Jim, Fan it, this is the thing. Always someone didn't want to do it. From what I hear, Slim Jim Phantom wanted to do it. Brian Setzer did not. But then this is the part that breaks my heart. John breaks my damn heart. Stephen Elvis Smith told me that there were three artists that were on the rise that he tried to convince Ann Beats and other people from the show that they should book. And they said no. And those were Wham. Wham could have been on square bags. Madonna, he was like, hey, check out this Madonna chick. She's on, she's going to be big. Madonna, I think that would have absolutely fit. And then the last one that didn't happen, but don't worry, where one door closes, another door opens, was Culture Club. Oh. So Culture Club did not end up on square pegs, but they found a few years later in the great year of 1980, the year of our Lord, 1986, probably maybe the most rant, bizarre cameo we'll talk about. Is Boy George on the A-team? What are your thoughts on that one, John? Well, it's 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 late period culture club, which fascinates me. That whole uh, from luxury to heartache, move away <laughs> era, spiky. Sexuality. Hair. Sexuality yeah. was from that era. Yeah, that right. was a good song, actually. His long, spiky hair hairdo where, you know, he kind of butched it up a little bit. Uh, I don't which, know if that was his choice. He was butched by Boy George Sanders, which right. made it a perfect way, perfectly, a perfect casting for him to be Cowboy George. He was the original Orville Peck. So yeah. from what I understand, from my fuzzy memories, and they're still fuzzy, even though I looked it all up on YouTube right before this, because it's just like, I'm still trying to compute that this actually happened. So there's some kind of plot where he's a country performer, like I said, the proto Orville Peck, Cowboy George, and he's performing in some, it's very reminiscent of like, the Blues Brothers scene uh, of them performing behind the chicken wire or like, you know, the Sex Pistols performing in the South or something, except everyone likes it when Boy George and Culture Club start performing Karma Chameleon in this like cowboy dive bar. The roughest, toughest cow punk to ever ride the range, Boy George. I'm 
But what's great is the acting in it because Boy George is like forced to say things like all sort of things he wouldn't say, like in his Boy George voice. Like he's like, go for it, Hannibal. And like, awesome, Mr. T. And there's one like sassy moment where they're walking away and they go, where are the A team? And Boy George goes, so there. <laughs> hey. Hey, who are you guys? We're the A team. Son of a gun. So there. So there. Ooh, boy George just put me in my place. So there. And, I, uh, I remember the for some reason they were really hyping this episode like it was going to be a huge ratings grabber. There was an ad and TV guide with Boy George and Mr. T, and it's like they were kind of on the downslide at that point, weren't yeah, they? Yeah, this is like a couple years after the war song. This is a couple years after mistake number three. This show was like mistake number four, but I watched it. I'm going to say I tuned in, but yeah, he, I think I saw, um, I told you I went down a YouTube rabbit hole. Not only did I watch all of the YouTube, whatever I could find of this appearance, but I did also watch the Conan O'Brien interview that boy George did around the time that take it like a man is autobiography came out where he talked about it. And he basically said he was paid like a hundred thousand dollars to do it, which actually doesn't sound like, that much money considering how big culture club were, but by 1986 and, you know, boy George having the habits that he did, I guess a hundred and, you know, things were falling apart. I don't, I'm actually surprised that all of them were even on the show Were culture club still together in 86. I guess they were. Yeah. But just he got by a thread at that point, but he got, you know, he got paid and we have now a moment that someone needs to make a gif of, or gif of, I say gif. I don't care. I, I it's gif. I'm sorry. Like, let's we don't have time to go into that debate, but it's a gift of Mr. T sitting in the dive bar, like kind of grooving to Karma Chameleon, which had come out three. That's the other thing. That's a good point, John. They're doing a song that was like three or four years old. That's an that's an executive stepping in. I can tell you that right now that, in, you know, that is a that is a either a record label executive or it is a uh, TV executive saying you got to do the song. Everybody knows before you can't do that. <laughs> That move away tune. I think it would have been really cool if they were in the cowboy dive bar with all the rednecks with all their beers and whiskey and they were singing sexuality. Play <laughs> with my sexuality. That was the jam from Culture Club from 1986. That would have been a great move. But, you know, Cowboy George, you know, maybe we'll get an album one day from Cowboy George. I don't maybe, think it would be a bad idea, actually. Maybe Marilyn will be on the Equalizer. <laughs> was Mar Well, Marilyn wasn't on the Equalizer, but Adam Ant was on the Equalizer. Yeah. Do you remember that? I do. And that that was a big deal. That, and that was it. Debbie Harry on Wise Guy. Mm -hmm. Those were just kind of like the two, you know, stabs for, uh, you know, uh, acting acceptance. You know, and Adam Ant, uh, again, trying to pivot, I think, because that was at 85, 86 after yeah. rock. Yeah. Like, OK, this the music thing is despite a great album from Tony Visconti producing Viva La Rock. I love that record. Uh, was you like the whole record. Do you like that song? I love the whole record. All right. Sorry. Uh, Did that have room at the top on it as well? No, no. That that's manners and physique in 1989. That's after, yeah. that's after right. didn't work out, and he went back. We'll save it. We'll save it for our Adam and the Ant or Malcolm. Let's do a Malcolm McLaren podcast. I would be in that. But back to the Equalizer. Did you know that yeah. Stuart Copeland and Ad Rock from Beastie Boys not together separately were both on that show? That show was True. that show's 
very fuzzy on my radar, but apparently they they had some cool guests. They, that show and Wise Guy, they did a lot of stunt casting like that uh, for you know these limited runs where they would come on and do three or four episodes as a character, and they would always try to get either a rock musician or someone who normally wasn't known for doing TV or those kind of things. And uh, it, it was interesting, you know, Debbie Harry had a lot of experience acting. Can we not forget Videodrome? Come on. Uh, I won't, I have not forgotten Videodrome. And, you know, to see her uh, was not that big a surprise uh, on Wise Guy. It was a surprise, you know, the time period, because again, a dry period for her in music, you know, Deaf, Dumb, and Blonde isn't exactly storming up the charts. And, <laughs> But do you know what show, forget about the Equalizer, do you know what show was like the Coachella of 80s cameos? Basically the Cameo Cello, Cameo <laughs> Cella, Cameo Cella, if you will, Miami Vice, which oh, makes yeah. sense because that show was basically, it pretty much every week looked like an hour long 80s music video. It was very like jump cuts and pastel colors and fashion. And if there's any moment that we need to focus on, it was great that Frank Zappa was on. That was cool. Phil Collins was actually amazing on it as Phil the shell playing like he should get a retroactive Emmy for his like uh, like sleazy slimy game show host that he's on and there's a whole montage scene of him just being badass like swilling champagne with models and like you know living it up on yachts but he's Phil Collins and he looks like Phil Collins that was good there was a whole like story arc where um Sheena Easton played Sonny Crockett's wife and she like dies in his arms cutting crew style. Right. She gets killed. She gets shot. It was a it was a very special episode of Miami Vice. Pour some out for Caitlin Davies. That was her name. And she played herself. It was uh and she also or she played a version of herself. She played a pop star and there was like a whole payola scandal in it. But if there's one moment in Miami Vice history that we must concentrate on, the power station we're on. Ah uh, did you watch have you not seen it? I, I I have seen it retroactively. I did not see it. And in fact, I actively boycotted it because. You're a Robert not, Palmer fan. Team Robert not, Palmer. Right. Not my power station. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, but, Michael DeBar, if you're listening. He's a friend. But I, I you would not. Have, I love a spider. I love okay. Michael DeBar. But power station is Robert Palmer. You would not like this episode then because I. So John Taylor, who, by the way, you know, I love John Taylor very much. Acting is not so much his strong. Great bass player. Great mm -hmm. bass player. Good looking guy. Nice guy. Not the best actor, at least not in this scene where he is playing himself not well. But there's a scene where he's talking to Crockett and, you know, Michael DeBar is there in like a kimono with a perm and no shirt on being his Michael DeBar self. And John Taylor. Anything else. Oh, he 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 sells it. He sells it, but he, John Taylor turns to Crockett, who I guess in this, you know, the story, the narrative is that they're supposed to be old friends. And he says, and I quote, we just got a new singer. You'll never notice the difference. You look so relaxed. Nothing ever changes, JT. Well, that's not true. We just got a new singer. You never notice the difference. Hey, dude. <laughs> that's a burn. That's a burn. Is. Were they like on the outs with Robert Palmer? Were they yeah, pissed with they, him? They weren't they were happy with them. Yeah, uh, they had a whole tour planned, and he pulled out. And not only that, I mean, if you look at it, I, I don't know if this is the case, but it just from outside looking in, not only does he pull out of this tour, he releases Riptide, 
which is an album that sounds exactly like the power station, you know? And he, he pulled out right before Live Aid, which quite famously, as we've discussed on our Ch- Feeling Charitable podcast that everybody Back can listen to, um, that, that was Michael DeBar's first. He had to, like, you know, jump into the deep end and fill yeah. the role right then. So he's on power station with them. And so John gets that little, like, bit of shade in there. He gets that burn. And then they perform and Andy's all sweaty. And like I say, Michael DeBar is wearing no shirt, but he's wearing like a dressing gown and his hair is increasingly getting smaller as he performs because it's like (laughs) obviously very sweaty in there. And then a fist fight breaks out. A fist fight breaks out in the middle of them doing Get It On. And John Taylor looks and, you know, with amusement at this fist fight, because obviously it's under control because Crockett and Tubbs, they got they got stuff under control. And he goes, oh, Crockett, nothing ever changes with you. (laughs) Ha ha. (laughs) <laughs> As they're still playing. And like I say, not the best acting job, but it's just classic. It's classic. But maybe now that you've had some distance, you know, I don't think it would be disrespectful to Robert Palmer's legacy to watch it now. But, and this is not disrespectful to Michael DeBar at all, who is not only a friend of mine, but someone who I think is a very good singer. But when he replaced Robert Palmer in Power Station, I mean, you did notice the difference. Oh, yeah. You know? <laughs> It would be an insult to Michael DeBar to not put your own stamp on it. You know, why wouldn't you try to be some, if you, if he tried to imitate Robert Palmer, he'd get crucified. So no, it's good that he was himself. Uh, just not my power station. Uh, the, the funny thing about Miami vice and guests is you had this Ouroboros of a uh, meta when you have Glenn Fry doing smugglers blues, which mm-hmm. is a vice like video and song. And then he gets invited to be on the show mm-hmm. and then, Miami Vice like show that gets canceled after one episode. <laughs> Poor guy. He had his own show, Glenn Frog. Oh yeah, it was called. What was it called? South by Sunset, I think is what it was called. And it was he was a, a private detective or something, and it, it aired once, and they canceled it the next day. Was it? I assume it was bad. Did you see it? I never saw it. It was one of those uh, things that you know they just cut their losses. Uh, some of those uh, articles you read sometimes about shows that got canceled after one airing, that one is always on it. And if I, you know, poor Glenn Fry. I will. I missed that during my uh, YouTube rabbit holing, but I'm going to watch it after this. I did actually forget that uh, you know another stunt casting on Miami Vice was Ted Nugent was on. Do you remember that oh, one? No, I he don't. He played him. He played a more sane version of himself. He made it was actually his actually his screen acting debut. He played a con artist named Charlie Bassett, who, uh, along with his wife, they kill drug buyers, take their money, and bury them in mile high sand. And Little Miss Dangerous appeared in one of the episodes. He was in um, a couple episodes. He was in more than one, and uh, probably you know less crazy than the real version of Ted Nugent. Yeah, now that yeah. I think about it. We got to give Miami Vice credit for doing that musician stunt casting that obviously influenced Equalizer and Wise Guys we were talking about earlier. Miami Vice did it first and did it well. They got Frank Zappa. Yeah, and Frank Zappa also not a great actor. Have you seen his scene? He plays like a drug lord on a yacht for some reason. And I, I'm not sure where he's supposed to be from, he's, but he doesn't sound like he's supposed to be American. He has some kind of weird accent. And he is. He sounds like he's reading cue cards or a teleprompter the entire time. I once had a trusted employee, a man named Maroto, who was moving some weasel dust for me. He too was in a hurry. After years of faithful service, he hurried away with three million of my favorite dollars. Did nobody see him host SNL in the 70s and, and 
realize this is what they were going to get. I mean, that <laughs> infamous for him. <laughs> I think it was a defense mechanism. I think he got up there and was a little more nervous than he thought he was going to be. And so it was like, okay, I'm going to look like an idiot. So if I really try to make it obvious that I'm reading the cue cards, I'll get away with this. And it just didn't work. Well, when we're talking about WTF moments on TV, yes, Ted Nugent is, and Power Station on Miami Vice, that's a little bit. And uh, uh, certainly Boy George and the A-Team is a lot of bit. But maybe the weirdest one that we'll talk about now that think about it is when the B-52s were on Guiding Light. I how, loved it. How did that happen? Do you know? Like, I have no had, idea what happened. Guiding Light was a B-52s fan, and they had to be a fan because – they did a song on it that was not a single. They didn't just do Private Idaho. They also did Throw That Beat in the Garbage Can, which is not a single. From Mesopotamia. I mean, yeah. it's like, what? Here it comes again. Driving me nuts. Can't control my pain. Oh, stop shaking my butt. And my mom was the biggest Guiding Light fan. It was on <laughs> every day at our house at 3 o'clock, which, you know, sucked because so was the Spider-Man cartoon at 3.30 on Channel 43. Uh, not that I remember these things. So <laughs> uh, I'm like watching, you know, I I, I want to believe the, the characters are named Sonny. There was a character named Sonny or someone else that Sonny was in love with. And they were, they were the kids on the show, you know, okay. the, the young kids that they can – after school trying to get those ratings and they're up against uh, general hospital and they have this uh who had Rick springfield on at the time who right. was living a double life as a huge pop star at the time yeah and a, and a surgeon a successful surgeon yeah, uh multitasker <laughs> you know is there anything rick springfield can't do i know but there were there was like this club this new wave club on the guiding light where all the kids hung out and the adults like you'd see like the 50 year old couples that had been on the show since you know the 1960s hanging out at this club and the b-52s were on and i remember i was probably a freshman or a sophomore in high school. And I'm like, mom, the B-52s are on the guiding light. My mom's like, what are they talking about? You know, what are they singing? She was like, and that, that man is so strange. And I'm like, you know, bopping in front of the TV. Like, this is the greatest thing ever. It's funny that your mom thought that it was strange because I watched it again to prepare for this. I had a wonderful time preparing for this. This was the best idea ever. I just spent like an afternoon watching stuff on YouTube. And Fred Schneider definitely was toning it down for the guiding light. He's wearing like a sensible button-down shirt. Yeah. yeah. He's definitely toning it down. The name of the club, if I'm not mistaken, was called Wired for Sound. Thank you. Is, yes. Which is actually a really bitchin' name for a club. And the guy who introduces them, I was not a Guiding Light fan. I was more young than the Wrestles fan. So I was watching uh, I was watching uh, Michael Damien singing David Essex covers on Young and the Restless while you were watching the B-52s on the Guiding Light. But uh, And that was great, too. I, You know, actually, this could almost be a whole podcast, the crossover between pop and soap operas in the yeah. 80s, between Michael Damien and Jack Wagner and all this stuff. But anyway, to go back to Wired for Sound, whoever's introducing him, he says they are one of the most innovative rock groups 
who are now riding the crest of the new wave. I'm like, mm. wow, someone who was working for the Guiding Light was a real fan. And I just love the fact that there were, I'm not saying your mother was one of these, but there were all these housewives with like, I don't know what housewives were doing in 1982. They're Harvey Wallbangers or they're, what are, they're lewds. What were what were the the Dexatrim? Whatever they were taking in yeah. 1982. De Dexatrim and vodka. Yeah, they've got their Dexatrim and vo vodka uh, cocktails. It's 3 p.m. Right. And all of a sudden the B-52s come on and do throw that beat in the garbage can. I bet you there's a lot of people like yourself, like uh, you were already wise to the B-52s, but I bet you there were some people that were turned on to them because that was about as like mainstream, unhip, as it could get a soap opera audience in the middle of the day. I have to wonder what Sire Records plan was if they were involved. <laughs> you know, it was like, we're going to get those housewives into Camelot music asking for the Mesopotamia. <laughs> do, you have, do you have the, you know, the, the vinyl of throw that bee in the garbage can? <laughs> I'm guiding light. And by the way, I was wrong. Sonny was from uh, General Hospital. Philip. Uh, I'm sorry. Guy. I was very loyal to Young and the Restless. That was the only one I watched. But Michael Damien, he had a he had an actual career from, and that's how I got introduced to David Essex. But that's another story. Let's move back to prime time because there were a few feel good, family friendly sitcoms at the time that welcomed pop stars, and, and Facts of Life was one of them. I remember <laughs> Cinnamon, aka Stacy Q. She won. Both of our hearts are two of hearts when she appeared as Cinnamon on the episode that I just looked up was called Off-Broadway Baby. She's basically playing a version of herself. And then there was a second episode that was called A Star is Torn. She did two of hearts and we connect. But here's a fun fact about the second episode, A Star is Torn. So a lot of people laugh about the fact that George Clooney was on the show long before George Clooney was George Clooney. And he was, you know, the mega star that he is now. He played this kind of like, I don't know. I forget the character's name, but like kind of like a handyman, I guess, kind of like a random guy who's like hanging out at this girl's school all the time. And it's totally fine and nothing's wrong. You know, nothing weird about that. And he leaves the show the way they wrote his character off the show is he leaves to join Cinnamon's tour as a roadie. Oh, wow. Is that so now we know what happened. Was there an episode where I, I'm this may be a complete fabricated memory in my head where Cinnamon stole a song from Tootie? <laughs> I want to believe that happened. Okay. I don't know. I believe there was a, like Tootie wrote a song, just happened to be Two of Hearts, I believe, you know, this great hit. And Cinnamon was like auditioning for Broadway or a musical or something. And she used Tootie's song for the audition. And Tootie was all torn up about it. I remember it was, Clo it was the Cloris Leachman era. It was not the Edna Garrett. Yeah. I started to drop off in the Cloris Leachman era, to be honest. <laughs> when they were like 30 years old and they still were like living together in like a dorm, but they all had jobs. It was like, come on. And they started to like introduce like Mackenzie Aston, like all these like cute kids and George Clooney probably was someone that they tried to do. It was tough. I can see why George Clooney thought like life as Cinnamon's roadie was going to be a more glamorous existence than. Um, he, had, he had to get away from the four most codependent people on the face of the earth that, you know, high school's over, girls. Let's move on. No, we're all going to go to, like, Langley University one block away and keep it going. But Work at Edna's Edibles. <laughs> Edna's Edibles. It's really funny it was called Edna's Edibles because now imagine what people yeah. think that business is. Well, maybe they were on some Edibles, but Tootie got her revenge, or at least she got another chance in the business when Elle DeBarge came on the show singing the bop of the year, You Wear It Well, and apparently, I never knew this, but Blair Joe 
Natalie and of course Tootie sang backup on that single, or at least they did according to this episode of the facts of life. And it, you know, I'm just bringing you the facts of life. You take the good, you take the bad, you have these random like kids from Langley University sing on your song. I don't know. I don't remember this episode. I could just find the musical version on you know, YouTube. So I don't know exactly how they ended up in the studio with Eldabars. I don't I, know. Do you remember? I don't, but I can tell you all that scene without even seeing it. I know exactly what it is. It's nothing but mullets, shoulder pads, and relaxer. That's all I can see. Hopefully there'll be a uptick for Spotify streams and other streams for Eldabars. Now we've talked not just about his star turn on the facts of life, but do you remember when all of the Debars members were on Punky Brewster? No. Do they get trapped in a refrigerator? They do not. They appear in her apartment for some reason singing. I can only, like, again, I'm just piecing this together from what I could find online. And there's like, do you remember like when people would sing on TV shows on sitcoms and they have like no microphones or amps or any kind of equipment for miles around, yet somehow they are singing with these like amplified voices with like piles of reverb on them? That's yeah. what happened. I did look up the description of this episode on IMDb. And it is thus. Punky wants to see the rock group. It says rock. I'm just reading it. This is what IMDb says. Uh, maybe there's another rock group called the bars that I want to wear. <laughs> Punky wants to see the rock group the bars in concert. But Henry is more concerned with her education. Doesn't he know the best education she can have is having the bars serenade her randomly with amplified voices coming out of nowhere in the middle of her apartment. That's the school of rock school of life. Don't that's, get better than that. That's crazy. Uh, you know, not only you got uh, them, the barge on uh, Punky Brewster, Adam Gibb on Punky Brewster. Andy Gibb. Andy mm -hmm. Gibb. That You said Adam Gibb just now. Didn't I think you? Adam Gibb, Andy okay. Gibb, Andy Gibb. Enunciate that because put some Andy. respect on his name. He was my no. first celebrity crush. My absolute yeah. first. And I actually watched that episode or, or that scene um, also in my YouTube uh excavating and i teared up because you know he was my first crush you know uh, had posters on him in my wall when i was like literally six or seven years old my first memory besides davy jones because i liked him in reruns my first memory of liking someone in real time so to speak like liking someone and uh knowing that they well i guess at age seven they really weren't like eligible but i thought they were uh was andy it's amazing because now you think about it at the time when he died, it was like, Oh, that, that's sad. And you think about it now, he was only 30 years old, which was like an old man when we were kids. And now we were like, yeah. wow, he was so young. So when he appeared on punky Brewster, he was 26. It was four years before he died and he played punky's piano teacher and his, obviously his career, you know, you and I on the TV, another TV related episode about like variety shows and stuff. We talked about solid gold. He had done that. He'd hosted solid gold. He'd done like Pirates of Penzance. He'd done a bunch of things. He obviously had uh, had a problem with drugs. And his career was definitely, you know, kind of washed up, I guess, for lack of a, a, a nicer way to put it. So he ended up playing Punky's piano teacher on um, in this 1984 episode. And it is magical. He's sitting there. The scene I saw, he's playing a song for her on the piano. And I forget the name of the song, but it's a song from 1981 that he originally released with Elton, with uh, Libby New and John. You might know what it is. I'm not, I think it's called Think About. I Can't Help It? Yes, it's I Can't Help It. Thank you. There you go. Mm -hmm. So he's doing I Can't Help It, just him and a piano. Punky, understandably, is looking at him 
with saucer size eyes of love. Like she is in love and who can blame her? But he sounds beautiful. He's, I mean, it's a very tender performance, but there's this moment, the dog, her, her, her dog and Henry, her uh, guardian are in the kitchen and she's in the living room with listening to Andy perform. And they perk up like, wow, that sounds really nice. And there's like, you know, what are those dog doors in the kitchen? And the dog comes out through the door and sits down and like watches. Like he's like, oh, let me, the dog is like, let me check this out. And then like Henry like pokes his, his, uh, his head through like, you know, the, the top of the door. It's one of those split doors. And uh, it's really nice. I actually, I mean, you know, I, I know it might sound like, oh, remember when Andy Gibb was on Pucky Pursuit? It's really nice. Everybody should really check it out because he was really talented. And at that point, you know, he'd been reduced to like a cameo on this like children's sitcom. And, you know, he hadn't had a hit in many years. And yeah. probably a lot of people had written him off, you know, understandably uh, had written him off. But God, he sounded so nice. And um, I know that Salome Fry has talked about in interviews how like all the little girls on the set, all the little act kid actresses were just like, adored him and just were mm. falling over him it's a it's a really it's a really nice moment am i wasting my time hanging around you would be gone but i can't help it every moment that i think about you every day and every night without you Poignant moment. So I, I, I'm going to follow that up with something just completely ridiculous. Cool. Awesome. We got to have the best of both worlds. You can't think of a way to match that in poignancy. Um, you know me, I go deep. Laura Brannigan on Auto Man. What? Auto Man? What's that? I don't Auto remember the show. A weird show that was like Knight Rider meets Tron about a guy who could trans Transformers before Transformers. He like had the power to move, turn into an automobile almost. What? I, I didn't write it. I didn't green light it. NBC, you know, throwing anything at the wall in the eighties. Laura Branigan on it. Not not only does Gloria, but three or two other songs. She does, uh, you know, Hot Night and Satisfaction. You know, two of the the other great Laura Branigan deep album cuts. I don't know. There's thought. nothing about the sentences you just said that I didn't like. You read me, Jack? Yeah, I got you, Walter. Everything cool? Roger. Everything's okay. Did Auto Man last longer than the Glenn Fry show? Like, yeah, I've never heard of the show in my life. It didn't make it longer than one episode. So, <laughs> Auto Man's got that on Glenn Fry, poor guy. Uh, I but, thought I had watched everything on YouTube that there was to watch, but I have a little bit of homework now. Okay. I, I do want to, before, I know this is a totally 80s podcast, but before we sign off, I just want to give some honorable mentions to the late 70s TV shows that paved the way for Boy George on the A-Team and Laura Branigan on Auto Man because they deserve credit. One 
would be speaking of Michael DeBar, the WKRP Scums of the Earth episode. Yeah. As a journalist, as someone who's interviewed people, particularly on live settings like radio or Facebook Live, that's my ultimate worst nightmare. The way that radio interview goes, where like they're just being total dicks, <laughs> and then there's that moment where they're off camera. Is it Venus Flytrap or Johnny Fever who interviews them? I think I, I think it's Johnny Fever, right? Yeah, I think it's Johnny Fever. But he during the radio break, and they're by the way, they're playing detective songs, like the Scums mm -hmm. of the Earth songs are detective. He says, "Guys, we're tanking here. This this interview is going so bad. Like, give me something to work with. Come on, you know, because they're giving him nothing." And Michael goes, "Okay," or not Michael, but Dog, his character in like dog collar and suit, says, "Ask me about my classical training." And Johnny Fever goes, "Okay, great, thanks." So they come back on. And he goes, well, we're back with Scums of the Earth. Uh, tell me about your classical training. And Michael goes, I have none. <laughs> like he was just effing with him. So that. good. So that one, Leather and the Suede, A.K. Leather, Tuscadero from Happy Days. Yeah. Susie, do you know that there was supposed to be, I've actually just interviewed Susie Quattro uh, this week uh, because she has that new documentary, Susie Q, that came out. Do you know that there was supposed to be a Leather Tuscadero spinoff? I want oh, to I would have watched the hell out of that. But she knew if she did that, she would be Leather Tuscadero for life, much as David Cassidy was Keith Partridge for life. Yep. So maybe wisely in hindsight. But God, I would have loved a, a Leather. That's like my first time I saw a chick rock out was Happy Days. Yeah, yeah. It should have been, that should have been the Joni Loves Chachi spinoff instead. I hope people listening to this learned a lot because, you know, we're all in quarantine. So we gave you some ideas of things to watch on YouTube. I can say from very personal experience that watching all this stuff on YouTube is a great way to pass the time. So that's all the time we have now. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I am Lindsay Parker. I've been joined today by the other John Hughes, and we want to thank you for listening. Remember to give us a rate and review on your favorite podcast platform, and we'll catch you next time. This was Totally 80s, the podcast dedicated to the music of the greatest decade ever. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Totally 80s, and please leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. Until our next episode, catch you on the flip side. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.